Welcome to the Siskins Business Essentials Podcast, where I sit down with lawyers from Siskins Business Division to discuss current issues, challenges, and opportunities affecting our clients. My name is Chris Seinel, and I'm a labor and employment lawyer. Uh, I practice primarily in arbitrations and uh, human rights, occupational health and safety, and WSIB uh, with clients in the manufacturing sector, broader public sector. And uh, today, uh, I'm here with my friend and colleague, Liam Ledgerwood, who also works in Siskin's Labor and Employment Department. So before we get talking, Liam, why don't you tell me a bit about your practice? Sure. Thanks, Chris. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm a junior labor and employment lawyer. I mean, ultimately, we are sort of the one-stop shop for any employment-related or labor-related questions for small, medium, and large-size international businesses in Canada. For the record, I never said you were a junior lawyer. No, that's fair, but I think that's the reality. So we have stacked the deck for the for the inaugural podcast, and it's all labor and employment lawyers. But so this is a strange and, and difficult time for our clients right now. There's um, obviously we've got COVID nineteen is affecting the landscape significantly. There's an extraordinary degree of government intervention of a level that uh, I don't think anyone has seen. And, um, you know, that intervention runs a full spectrum from orders for, for certain clients to cease operating. You know, I'm thinking of, uh, of daycares, for example, um, restaurants that can't do takeout and things like that, and closures of their physical premises to certain places being declared essential workplaces. And as you and I have discussed kind of before, I can see clients generally on that spectrum fitting into, into one of four camps. You know, we've got uh, places that are that are closed and just functionally unable to operate. And so, you know, I think of restaurants and daycares. Uh, and then we've got places that may not be what have been declared essential operations, but at least, you know, are, are able to conduct work remotely and where, you know, some or all of the workplace are, are operating from home. And then we've got those essential employers where they've they've still got employees that are actually you know in the shop working, and so that's that's a number of our manufacturing clients um, come to mind. And then of course we've got frontline uh, essential workers, um, you know, grocery stores and and, and uh, healthcare providers. So you know, right now, what are the biggest challenges that you're hearing from? I guess for for each of those four groups, if you want, um, for your clients, what are you hearing are the biggest challenges right now? So I think for the essential employers that are, you know, continuing operations, essentially business as usual, the big one that I think many of us keep getting calls about is work refusals one way or another. And I don't know uh, how you would categorize them, but I'm sort of seeing work refusals fit into one of three buckets. So I'm seeing work refusals that are motivated by generalized concerns, right? So, you know, there is COVID-19. I'm scared to come into work because I don't want to contract the virus. I'm seeing work refusals based on specific concerns, right? So this is where employees will, will refuse to come into work or say, I don't want to be here, not because of general issues, but because, you know, George, who sits two cubicles down, has had a cough for three weeks and I'm immunocompromised. And then sort of the third bucket I see is just straight up economically motivated. So this would be. And I think this is going to be a growing issue in the next few weeks, but employees who aren't paid very well, uh, who have a lower wage rate, and who, for just dollars and cents reasons, would rather not be exposing themselves to the risks of being in the workplace, but uh, would rather be collecting 
you know, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit serve for a marginal reduction in their wages, but of course, <laughs> better lifestyle and, and better protection of their health by not being at work. So I, I think those are sort of the three categories I'm seeing. I, I don't know about you, Chris, do, do you think that reflects your experience as well? Yeah, I think uh, when it comes to the last point, I, I, th- I agree with you that I think in the next few weeks, that's going to be a huge problem. And uh, even if we like push out a few months, when we start to get some level of easing, because the government announced just at one o'clock today when they released the new modeling data that, yeah, it looks like Ontario is through its peak and that, you know, this is now mostly about keeping the social distancing and the restrictions in place at a sustainable level until there's the development of a vaccine, which could be 12 to 18 months from now, who knows? And so, yeah, I agree that, you know, where we've got, let's say, permission either now or later to actually get people together and have them working again, you're going to have a lot of people that, you know, if you're paid minimum wage, slightly above minimum wage, potentially even higher. Yeah, like you said, they, they may say, you know, it, it, it's just not worth it. I know I, I had a bunch of broader public sector clients who either themselves were considering or had said that they had heard of other let's say healthcare providers or what have you, offering some sort of incentive pay. A few different places talked about it as, as hazard pay. I, I've sort of cautioned people against calling it hazard pay, just because I think that may feed into the first one that you, met, that you talked about, which is just the generalized concern. But I think it's, if there's a pay premium, it's simply a recognition that uh, people are working under high-stress situations that you know you probably weren't initially hired for. Like I think Loblaws led the way when one of the first things they did, because you remember this was this is weeks ago they did this. They they gave everyone a two buck an hour pay raise. That's right. And I remember I went to Loblaws shortly after that and spoke to a cashier when I was in line. And he was just oozing you know support and praise for for their you know the employer. And you don't often get that from um, you know from in every workplace. So I think the workers there appreciated that. But you know, the challenge there, going back to the overall theme of what are the challenges that employers are facing, not every employer is able to absorb that right now, right? You might have some essential workplaces where the employer would love to provide a hazard pay, you know, to use that term or or some type of bump to the remuneration. But if their revenues have fallen 20%, 25% because of COVID-19, then the employer is stuck between a rock and a hard place because it's got employees who frankly would rather be elsewhere and no uh, no option to incentivize them to come to work, right? That's There's going to be a province-by-province province consultation because the federal government just doesn't have jurisdiction over every essential workplace. One of the things you mentioned when we talk about the, the effusive praise that the Loblaws employee was giving because they, they'd gotten the, the wage increase the government's rolled out this wage subsidy. Uh, and, uh, and one of the things that the prime minister keeps talking about is, is the importance of having that connection between workers and their employers. We, we were surprised, I think, when the government, they didn't retool the program because it didn't exist yet, but when they, they changed the, what was being pushed out on the internet to really explicitly indicate that there's there's no expectation that people come into work. The, the government would it would just prefer that rather than cut people a a relief check directly, whether it's through EI or through this directed benefit, 
um, they would rather funnel the relief money through the employer to the employee to the tune that they'll actually give more money, right? Because the, the, the wage subsidy weekly caps are higher than, than the CERB. So I, I'm intrigued by this idea that the government really wants to keep um, that pay stream going from the employer to the employee. So one of the questions I had is off the top of your head, what do you think the legal effect is of using the wage subsidy as opposed to just letting your employees get the benefit if there if there is a legal benefit? And then what's the practical benefit that you think the government's trying to key into here? So in terms of the legal benefit, you know, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, the internet was abuzz with articles about layoffs and constructive dismissals. And this was the big buzz point in the the employment law community is, okay, employers are laying off their employees. And this comes with that corollary risk that a court might conclude that you have effectively fired your employees by laying them off. So I think that the, the intended legal effect here is to is to essentially eliminate layoffs and instead bring employees who aren't working, who aren't in the workplace back onto payroll, even if they're not attending work and performing work and paying them their regular wages up to a certain cap. And I, I would argue uh, as a completely non-biased employer side um, employment lawyer uh-huh. that that this will potentially have an impact on the viability of constructive dismissal arguments because, you know, certainly these employees are going to be paid up to a certain cap, 75% um, of their wages just from the federal subsidy. And the employer hasn't laid them off in the traditional sense of no work, no pay. So I think that that is, is sort of the big legal effect, but it's difficult for us to to predict exactly how it'll roll out because, of course, we're, we're a year and a half, maybe two years away from um, the litigation that will inevitably arise from this rolling through the courts uh, and finding its way to written decisions. Okay, so super question. Putting aside whether an employer has the liquidity to just begin paying out 75% of the wages while they wait for the government to reimburse them, how, you know, however long it is from now. To maybe reimburse them. Right. Um, you know, putting that aside, let, let's assume the guy, let's assume the company is able to, to obtain, uh, you know, one of the, it was originally a small business loan. They've, they've blown it up significantly. So they're able to get a loan to get some, some cash immediately uh, and, and can do the wage subsidy. Uh, is there any argument against using the wage subsidy or rolling that out kind of as soon as humanly possible? I think that the, there are a few asterisks to be aware of. So, the big one is employers aren't necessarily going to even know that they're entitled to the subsidy until after each entitlement month. So um, the way the data works is you need to have seen a decline in revenues year over year for the most part from you know March 2020 to March 2019, April 2020 to April 2019. But the only way to know if you've hit that revenue drop is at the end of March or the end of April. So if you're bringing back your employees from layoffs and sort of anticipating that you will be entitled to this wage subsidy from the government, but your revenues only decline, and I say only sarcastically as I can, 27%, then, you know, uh, unfortunately, you're not going to be entitled to the wage subsidy for that month and you're out all of these wages. You've potentially borrowed money to pay those wages. And uh, instead of getting the help you expected, you're, you're just deeper in the hole. 
Do you think the advantage of offsetting the legal constructive dismissal risk outweighs the potential significant business risk you've got just hemorrhaging this cash before you know that you're actually going to get back? Well, you know, I think it probably will depend on a case by case basis. So our clients will know better than us what how much they expect their revenues to fall uh, and whether they'll be likely to meet these the eligibility criteria. So I think that it'll probably be important for our clients to really sit down, look at the eligibility criteria and try to figure out, okay, what among these criteria are within our control? What can we do to try to ensure we meet these criteria and what can't we control, such as potentially a revenue drop? And do we expect that we'll be entitled to that? What have, I mean, what about you? Do you, do you see is not being a program that every employer should take advantage of? I actually think one of the biggest benefits that comes from it isn't the legal one. It's this idea that the, the biggest antidote or antiseptic to litigation is controlling employees' expectations and um, and their, their feeling towards the company. And so generally, if, if people feel that their employer are treating them with dignity and are, are really, you know, we're all in this together and we're all just doing the best we can, I think the likelihood that that employee is going to be sort of hurt and angry and blame the employer and try and, you know, take a pound of flesh out of that employer, I think it's reduced dramatically. And so I think the if, if you have the ability, if you have you know, either the cash on hand or the ability to secure it, to give something to the employees, because remember, it doesn't have to be 75%. The wage subsidy caps out at 75%. But to give that, it keeps that line of communication open with the employees. It keeps that direct connection as they're getting the, the payroll you know, from you. Um, if there's uh, benefits and, and, and other things that, that are included with that, even better. But the more we keep that connection, Connection live with our employee pool. The two things that are great with that, I mean, three things. One, these are people we care about. They, they help build our business. We, we want to support them. But two, it just the, the nature of that reduces the legal risk, which I think is fantastic. And then the third thing is once we get to a point where the government begins to loosen this up and there is some return to if not normal operations, then, then at least, you know, a new normal. Right. Uh, then it's going to be comparatively easier to flip those employees back into active service fairly quickly if they feel that that connection. So do you think this has killed the layoff? How many of our clients will be seriously considering layoffs now that there's the emergency wage subsidy? I suspect what we'll see, because of course, so many so many things, access to the wage subsidy, like you're saying, depends on the revenue numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, but I think if we start seeing decreases in revenues that would normally result in us laying people off, I suspect we're going to see a lot more of wage reductions. And so we'll see a lot more, we need you to take a 25% pay cut. Right. Or, or, or even a 10% pay cut, right? Because if all of a sudden now I've got my employee pool and I have the potential, if the revenue decline is significant enough to be able to go to the government and have them pay for three quarters of my payroll expenses, you know, obviously up to the cap, then, um, you know, apart from my high earners, where I might be able to have a sit down conversation about, you know, can we do a temporary wage reduction of some kind? I, I just, I think we're going to see a lot more of that than just wholesale laying people off. So what I think will be interesting to see too is for those employers who decide to take advantage of the subsidy but not bring their workers back, so essentially privatize the eye uh, with, with the with the feds. Yeah, like f- furlough them. 
Right, with the feds paying the ultimate bill. What, what will be really interesting is, because as employment lawyers, we know that there's pretty good case law out there which suggests that even a, a 10% reduction in uh, wages in the 10 to 15% range can be enough to trigger a constructive dismissal. So how viable is the argument by an employee, well, my wages were reduced 25% from 100 you know, to, down to 75%. Um, and I was doing no work, and that's a constructive dismissal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was thinking about that too. You know, normally, if all of a sudden you just get sent home on leave, and it had no firm end date, and they found that well, the, 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 the actual performing of work uh, was an intrinsic part of the job, and denying them that was yeah a constructive dismissal. Yeah. So I, I, I hear that. I just think. Most judges, who are people too, shockingly, you know, if you put that to them and say, in all of the circumstances, here's the here's the economic data, because you'll need to show that it was done in good faith. Here's the economic, you know, internal data that shows that we couldn't support this. And if the business was going to survive or be able to make a pivot out of this or into whatever the new environment was going to be, we needed to take X action. I, I can just imagine that... What we might get is where normally the courts don't really care a lot about what the back-end business reasons for the decision was. They just they just kind of look at the contract between the employer and the employee. Was this a material change? If so, constructive dismissal. Right. I think we're going to see a lot more, was it a reasonable decision in the, in the totality of the circumstances? And now that we've got, you know, the Supreme Court suggesting that uh, that we can look at surrounding circumstances when we're interpreting a contract and there's that level of reasonableness that has to be put into it. I don't know. I think we could get some traction there, which I think makes sense in the circumstances. Right. I mean, it's, it's an unprecedented, you know, global crisis that really hasn't seen a parallel since Spanish flu in 1919. So, yeah, I agree. I, I don't think that's necessarily going to stop certain lawyers from bringing claims. I think that, unfortunately, employers are likely going to be facing litigation out of uh, some of what's going on. But that said, I do hope that the court will take a more holistic view of, of the circumstances when when these cases do start to roll through. Absolutely. So th- this is a good kind of opportunity to move into, you know, eventually when things start reopening. Because I, I don't think anybody thinks that there's going to be a you know, week after next, the government just says, congratulations, everyone can reopen again. I, I imagine that, you know, we'll get some sort of staged thing, you know, who knows, but that until we've got a vaccine or we can be fairly certain that the uh, the healthcare system is going to be able to take whatever new waves pop up, I imagine we're going to see some sort of significant changes. I know there's talk in the States about, you know, opening up immediately. There's little of that here right now. But when we look at those groups we were talking about, the essential workplaces, the uh, the folks that are closed right now, I'm curious where we see or what we see happening over the next kind of three, six, nine months. So I'll give you an example. You know, when I think of the places right now that are essential workplaces, so, you know, we talked about law laws, but even the places that are are continuing to operate right now, like the manufacturing, you know, the, the tier one and tier two automo- automotive manufacturers, the, the auto guys are closed down right now, which I understand was largely a drive of their unions where the employees said, we're not coming in, you know, we're not doing this. Right. And so if, if they are ever going to get to a point where they're producing again, 
you know, one wonders what sort of steps they're going to have to put in to be able to assuage the health and safety risks that their unionized counter, that their unionized employees have. You know, are we going to see less production on the line because there's more physical distancing that's actually built into the production line, right? Right. Which is going to have knock-on effects for all of our tier one and tier two clients as well. And so I, I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea of what sort of physical and operational changes am I going to have to make? And then what's the knock-on effect from that going to be? Yeah, and it's, it's an interesting point because we have seen some of our clients ask us about temperature testing as well. And if this is a pandemic that you know, many health experts are predicting that this will be going on for 18 to 24 months and potentially even longer in, in terms of the knock-on effects and, and flare-ups. So does that mean that it will become a norm in workplaces, especially those with close quarters of work, for regular temperature testing? I mean, probably not. But these are the types of, of initiatives that you might see in some contexts just to make sure that employee health is protected. Uh, I do also think that you'll see, you know, the return to normal may never actually happen and that there will probably be some structural changes to work in general. And and one of the changes I expect to see is an increased focus on remote work and work from home. I think it will be difficult for employers to return workers who are now working five days a week remotely to business as usual in the office five days a week because those employees have realized, well, you know, I actually can continue a lot of my essential duties from home without the one hour each way commute, you know, for for employers in Toronto or whatever like that. So I, I think you'll see an increased focus on remote work as well, which will mean more policies, procedures, security built into computers, virtual meetings, uh, and everything that comes along with that as well. Yeah. One of the things that, I mean, what I'd encourage clients to look at as they get to a place where they can begin operating, you know, in some level close to what was happening before uh, is, yeah, you know, we may have more employees wanting to work more remotely, but really we'll want to do an analysis of what sort of productivity outputs, depending on, you know, what we're doing, were we getting when people were working remotely? Because if the, if the reality is we were getting a fairly good return on investment, then that means we can potentially cut down on operating costs, overhead, all sorts of stuff. If we've got fewer people that are actually located in the physical building, if they're working from home. That's just it. And, and I think this will also, this whole crisis will expose and, and show the difference between employers who have had technological solutions in place for, you know, to prepare for stuff like this and those who didn't, because those who didn't may have a harder time tracking productivity, right? If this crisis shut down a workplace overnight and before, you know, before anyone really had time to think, everyone's working from home, well, they may not have the software necessary to be tracking productivity or to make their employees productive in the first place, whereas employers who have those resources in place before may be able to actually sit down, crunch the numbers. Okay, what what was our return on investment for employees who worked in the office versus those who worked from home? How productive were they at home? What types of processes, procedures can we put in place, you know, moving forward to make sure that everybody is, that we're getting the most out of our workers, that everyone's happy, um, and, you know, employee wellness and mental health is being protected and everything else. One of the things I'll be really surprised if I don't see is for the essential workplaces that we were talking about, where we've got potential motivation issues, uh, where we've got, you know, employees, 
I'm not saying illegitimately concerned about the risk of exposure because they're being told to stay at home, but at the same time being told to come in and work mm-hmm. is in those environments, especially in the next three to six months where other people are continuing to work remotely to the greatest degree possible, but they are coming in for their job in, you know, whatever's been declared the essential workplaces is their bargaining power is going to explode. And so we already talked a while ago about, you know, potential wage increases to, to keep those people at work and satisfied. But, you know, if we don't see a run of unionization or at least union organizing drives in those workplaces, I would be shocked. Yeah. And I think there's multiple ways to skin that cat, so to speak. I mean, I, I agree that you might see more bargaining drives and more union presence to increase their bargaining power. I also wonder if you'll see governments talk about introducing uh, emergency legislation, which sort of predicts or preempts these types of crises in the future to make sure that we've got something in place to bump up the wages of essential workers when we need the most from the get-go. And I, I think that that might be another solution, which is not necessarily worker and, and workplace, but more of an overarching provincial or federal initiative, just to make sure that in these tough situations, we can, from the very beginning, focus on what's important, which is getting through this together, making sure essential operations continue to be fulfilled without uh, workers and employers having to kind of have these concerns uh, every time. I think um, the other thing, of course, is, I mean, for those businesses that are particularly hard hit now, uh, for the businesses that, you know, have effectively been forced to cease their operations, I'm thinking of restaurants. Even even when we get a reopening, I I would be surprised if we didn't see some level of, of physical and social distancing that's kept in place, even if the dining rooms are allowed to open, which means, you know, a reduced capacity, obviously less revenues. And so in addition to any government support or assistance put in to to keep those places alive. I think one of the things that we'll see happen is at that kind of wage band, which is really, really important to a host of people, there's probably going to be fewer jobs there. And so the reality is those jobs are going to be in an exceptionally high demand as, you know, people try and get them. And when jobs are in high demand, you know, that is actually a suppress, like a suppressing force on wages. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If everybody wants a job, you know, and there's not enough to go around. So, yeah, I, I also wonder, and this is, has nothing to do with the law, but I keep hearing everybody talk about the death of the handshake. And given that this is the, the down to business podcast, the death of the handshake seems to be relevant as well to that. I don't know about that, but going to your point about social distancing. Yeah, it's um, I was always a fist pump guy. Are you? <laughs> Yeah, well, well, not always, but like, I, I, you know, I certainly, uh, you know, I enjoy a handshake as much as the next, but this elbow thing I've, I've never gotten into. I don't, it's, it's not going to do it. No, no, I don't know what that's about. Um, maybe we'll just do the soccer hooligan. Everybody just smashes foreheads together. I don't think that's going to happen. Well, uh, I, I want to thank Liam Ledgerwood, an associate in Siskins Labor and Employment Group for uh, coming out and talking today. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, uh, please check out Siskins website at www.siskins.com or on Instagram at Siskins underscore LLP. So thanks again for listening. I'm Chris Seinel, and this has been Liam Ledgerwood and I talking about the business essentials of employment law in COVID-19.